If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Let's talk about weird Catholic art. Oh, good. I was hoping we were going to talk about which I, this. Which I see a lot of. Like I go, so, so, you know, I write for the blog and I need a picture for the blog and I'm looking around. Is there a picture I can steal to throw up on the, and, um, I see these pictures and, and they're weird. Molly and I visited a church, Catholic church near Tucson. We have a daughter down there and we were out bombing around looking at stuff. And this was cool. It's kind of a museum. It's a super old church. And it was, I think it was a stone building, you know, uh, extremely ornate on the inside. Uh, and a lot of it just looked indecipherable to me. I didn't understand what I was looking at. And there was some old art on the walls. And even when you took me on a tour of the cathedral in Grand Rapids, there was a sort of a wall of stuff up behind the altar and, and none of it resonated with me. Okay. It was, it was, it, it just seemed like so over or over ornate, like knickknacks, like, like, forgive me for this, but like the mafia decorated it, you know, all <laughs> like red and gold and, you know, um, and I, I didn't understand any of it or the, or the meaning of any of it. It just looked weird to me. And then I, you know, I poke around on the internet and I see these, these paintings, these old paintings of Jesus and, and they're, he's like, sort of like a nerdy guy, you know, pulling his, his shirt open to show you his weird heart kept in a jar right. or whatever. Yeah. And he's making that, I, you have to explain this to me. He's making that hand gesture with two fingers up, you know, <laughs> like looks like a sort of a peace symbol, but not really. And I have no idea what that means. And sometimes the people just don't even look like normal people. Like, like a lot of this stuff strikes me as being made by mediocre artists who got promoted because they were good Catholics, you know, um, <laughs> stiff, non-lifelike pictures over and, and overly pious feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm now, I'm now here's what I think. And you tell me if I'm, you know. This stuff might come to mean something to me if I was deeper into Catholicism. If I was on the inside for a while, if I converted and joined the church, I think I'd need to spend some time learning and internalizing what it is, the significance of this, okay? I still wonder why it can't re be replaced with something a little more modern, like when they learned how to draw a face in two dimensions or something, <laughs> you know? Um Anyway, that's that's kind of my whole rant right there. It's <laughs> awesome. Is that that it's um it has struck me as something that I I could I just couldn't connect to it at all, you know? Man, this is great. I was I was hoping we were going to talk about this because look, viewed from one angle, there is something 
I think, gloriously weird about a lot of Catholic art. And I say that gloriously weird. And I remember when I was younger and I saw this thing, I mean, this is super weird. And then as I drew closer and closer to Catholicism and I entered the church and got deeper into it, I was like, now I've come to understand it. So I I think there's a part of it that I, I kind of revel a little bit in. Right. A little bit of of how discordant it is with the rest of the culture because it's something that we own. And if you think about other artistic traditions, I mean, not even religious, right? But I mean, look, I'm, I'm sitting across from you and you are a devotee to a pretty weird and specific artistic tradition, which is surf guitar and surf right. music, right? Right. And it's, you got to admit, it's a little bit like its own kind of thing. Right. And, you know, the whole surf guitar deal from the 60s and all that, you know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 400 years from now, it's going right. to look super weird. So you're saying my little tiki coffee mug is... Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah, your, yeah. Your, your whole little tiki motif <laughs> and surf bard stuff all is but i guess what i'm trying to say is at one level a community or a culture what it means to be a community or a culture is to have cultural items and cultural traditions and elements that you know represent that culture i mean symbols and things right that's part of what a culture is and we can look at other subcultures right uh, not even just religious subcultures but subcultures, sure. you know, uh, artistically and everything else where they have all of those visual and audible and everything else, other kind of elements that signify and become a part of it. So on the one hand, yes, Catholicism has its own sort of subculture, artistic subculture. Now, but let's, let's dive into why some of it is the way it is. Okay. And to do this, let's just do a little bit of kind of art history in general. Okay. Okay. A set of, not just related to Catholicism, but in general. So if we go all the way back to the earliest human artistic representations, we probably would go back to the cave paintings, right. you know, of the cavemen in France and these other places where, you know, they kind of do this cave painting of the, you know, them hunting a woolly mammoth or right. bison or something, right? And what you notice about those is they don't look photorealistic. Right. They're representational rather than realistic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have the mastodon or the bison or whatever, and then you have these little stick figure guys. And and the stick figure guys, one of them is bigger than the others. Right. And, you know, because he's the, right? Because he's, he's, the, the, he's the boss or he's the guy that got the mastodon or right. something, right? So part of it is, is that, you could say, well, they just, they didn't know how to draw photorealistic. Or you can say, well, part of it was to convey something. He go, hey, look, there's Ali Oop. And he was the guy who right. got the, you know, he's got right. the guy that got the woolly mammoth. And so we commemorated his victory right. over the woolly mammoth, right? By making him really big and a different color. And then if you go forward and you look at how art became representational. So go, go to the Egyptian art, you know, you see in the pyramids or whatever, right? right? And they're all, you remember to walk like an Egyptian, they're all drawn in this weird sort of stiff two-dimensional way. I remember I had an art history teacher who said, well, it wasn't that they couldn't draw their ways, but without getting too down into this, there are reasons why they drew figures the way they drew them. And they drew them of different sizes. I'll get into this in a moment. 
because you would see like the Pharaoh guy is bigger and then the servants are drawn smaller. Right. And you would draw them the way they did where they remember they all call stiff, like the frontal view with the side head and everything else. I still draw that way, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) I had an art history teacher who said, well, you drew the important parts. You, right. 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 You know, you didn't want to grab the guy's back or his profile. You went to the part that showed, uh, you know, what he was wearing or showed his crown or showed his this or that. Right. So that when you went into the pyramid or whatever right. and you looked, you could look across this and go, oh, look, here's the Pharaoh and here's this little guy and here's right. the other queen and here's the little thing. And right. Here's the jackal God. And so in other words, you could see it and it conveyed information to you. Right. Right. Fast forward to really what was an amazing innovation or, you know, revolution. And that was the classical Greek period. Because those classical Greek statues, they began to carve statues out of marble that actually looked like people. Like people. Right. Right. And so we can all go see those amazing from, you know, 400 BC, those amazing Greek statues that they look really like people. Except, kind of, because they're idealized forms, right? So there's some, you know, athlete throwing a discus or whatever, right? And he's perfect. Right. Because you're drawing sort of the idealized human form. But it looks more sort of photorealistic. But even that is in a sense representational because they didn't. They didn't put the the middle-aged bald guy right. with love handles right. in the temple on the Parthenon because yeah. nobody wants to go into the Parthenon and see the fat middle-aged bald guy, right. you know, throwing a discus. Nobody ever asks me to sit for a drawing. Right. Yeah. You wanted to show in your temple the idealized form. Sure. And so there is a sense of representation there and the proportions are perfect in all of this. Well, again, the Romans kind of pick up on some of that, but then kind of Catholic art comes in and we start looking at uh, the earliest forms of it would be paintings in the catacombs or drawings in the catacombs. And those are a little bit like those drawings that the Egyptians did where you would convey things. So you'll see a picture of, for example, the most famous and earliest of all Christian art is a representation of Jesus as the good shepherd. It's a fresco in the catacombs of Calixtus, I believe, in Rome. I've seen it. I think it's in Calixtus. Uh, There's several catacombs there. And it's Jesus as a good shepherd. And it's sort of an idealized fresco on the wall that shows him as a shepherd with little sheep. Right. And then there's little people. And well, now again, you know, again, that's a sort of a representational thing. Here's Jesus and he's got a sheep over his shoulder. Right. Right. He's carrying the sheep back. And again, that becomes representation. I look and I go, oh, here's a guy and he's got long hair and he has like a sheep around his shoulder and he's walking another little sheep following him. That's the good shepherd and that's Jesus bringing the lost sheep back. Right. So when I look at it, I go, oh, that's what it means. Right. Still with me here? Right. Yep. Now let's fast forward as sort of this representational principle of art. So we were actually talking about this the other night. If you look at, the early icons in the church where they would show the Virgin Mary. They would show Mary and then Jesus is on her lap. Right. Except 
He doesn't look like a baby. He looks like a little 30 or 40 year old man. You were talking about this in one of the recent podcasts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he looks like this 40 year old man sitting on her lap. Like he's, he's just, already going bald. Yeah, he's yeah. kind of like, all he's going to say he's going bald and he's wearing a Roman toga. Right. And you're like, why? So, so I mean, with all due respect, it looks like she's got a, like, a, right. a 40 year old midget. Right. In a Roman toga on her lap. Like a circus act. Yeah. Like why is Mary have a 40 year old midget on her lap? Well, okay. Here's the thing. Because when you look at it, you go, oh, he is God, the second person of the Trinity. And for a little while he was made smaller. Right. Right. So I look at, I see Jesus, I see Mary, and then Mary had God come down and he voluntarily. Right. You know, entered into a lesser, right. you know, and became a man. And, but when you look at the picture, you go, yeah, but see, he still looks like he's still God. It's just, he's like right. a smaller version of God right. because he, you know, became the incarnation. Does that make sense? Yep. And so when someone would come into that church and look at that icon, they go, ah, there's Mary and see, there's the Lord who has come down and she's in, you know, right. right. So the idea yep. is conveyed. You still with me? Yep. So fast forward, you go into the Middle Ages and the Middle Ages have a very distinct style of painting mm -hmm. in which a lot of things are kind of two-dimensional and flat, but the Middle Ages also convey very particular ideas and conventions about how things are drawn. And here's one that we were actually, we were talking about this in class the other night at the Lane class. And we were talking about Mary and the Annunciation and how she appears in Protestant art versus yep. Catholic art. So when you look at Protestant art about the Annunciation, which for our listeners is the moment when the angel comes to Mary right. and makes angel Gabriel tells her. So the way this is often portrayed in Protestant art, especially Protestant movies, you know, if you look at the Jesus movies or this or that kind of thing, what you end up with is Mary and it's the middle of the night. Right. And she's like this teenage girl and she's wearing her nightgown or night right. clothes or whatever. And she's startled and she's in some kind of hut or, right. you know, kind of yeah. poor home or, you know, made of a clay or adobe or something. Right. And then there's this super bright light shining down from through the window. Right. Right. Shining like, uh, like there's a spotlight. Right. Outside the window shining down on her and she's startled and she looks up. That's how it's always represented, almost always. But if you go back in Catholic art to the earliest days of icons, Mary is portrayed seated in a high back chair and she's not wearing her nightgown or nightclothes or pajamas. Right. She's usually in a gown, like a queen. And the angel Gabriel is kneeling. He's on one knee before her. Okay. Right. And this conveys, again, how you represent things in art conveys information to, right. to the viewer. So, you know, there's nothing in you know, my Protestant friends with Sola Scriptura. It doesn't say in Luke that Mary was asleep in the middle of the night. Right. And she got woken up and looked up right in her pajamas. It doesn't say that. Uh, the Protestants want to... A Protestant and um, in Protestant imagination, Mary is portrayed that way lesser than the angel who's announcing to her right. and startling her. In Catholic art, she is portrayed as 
the angel coming to her and she is granting her fiat, what we call in Catholicism and Catholic tradition, her fiat, her, her yes. She is saying, let it be, right? As right. the Beatles saying, right. let it be, let it be unto me. I agree and I right. agree to do this. And so she is portrayed as the new Eve. And then we've talked about this, you know, many right. times before. She's the new Eve who is granting her fiat to the angel Gabriel who comes to her. And, and do you see it? So, so you see how you compose sure. the image conveys information. Now I could go on and on and on about all of these kind of Catholic traditions where they're drawn a certain way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we get to the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. So the Renaissance starts trying to once again recapturing that classical Greek and Roman concept of portraying things in an idealized form and being right. more using perspective and having things look right. more three-dimensional and all that. And that goes on for a while. And there's some, you know, amazing works of Renaissance art that are Catholic art. I mean, look at Michelangelo's David, look at, you know, the works of Da Vinci, yeah. Michelangelo, these kinds of great artists. But you can also look at Michelangelo's Pietà, which I think is one of the most beautiful works of art ever, but it's p- composed in a very particular way yep. uh, in order to convey certain information. Fast forward from that, that period of sort of photoreal, not photorealistic, but that notion that things should look like they're supposed to look or be three-dimensional. And now let's, let's accelerate up to the early 20th century. And what enters into art is Impressionism, Mm -hmm. French Impressionism. So artists begin to back off from making things look exactly like they're supposed to look to, right? So we can look at Monet and the Impressionism and this. And then we go into Expressionism, which would be like Van Gogh. And right, you see the Starry Starry Night. And that's things start to look less realistic. Then we go into Cubism, which is like Picasso, where everything looks all flat and weird and cubist. And then now we go into modern abstract art where nothing, I don't know what it's supposed right. to be. So all of this is a long way to sort of give some framing in art history to say, well, if you say Catholic art looks a little weird because Jesus looks a certain way or Mary looks a certain way in these paintings versus looking realistic, I would say nobody paints anything that looks realistic anymore. I mean, that ship sailed. Right, yeah. No modern yeah. artists paint that. No artists have painted that way for a hundred years. Show me modern art, modern sculpture, modern art. None of it looks realistic. Right. It's all, or now we've, you know, we get into the surrealism, right? And postmodern right. art. So when we hold it up and say art is supposed to look like the thing right. and to, to look realistic, right. that is a window, a very narrow window of time in art history where things were supposed to look realistic. And and it's in the past because right. that's not how art is done today. So when we look at Catholic art in that larger context, it fits within an artistic tradition that's kind of representational, but it doesn't look as weird as modern abstract art. Right. And in fact, if you t- show me those, like you talked about going and seeing the Rados behind the altar at the Grand Rapids Cathedral, I get what you're saying about the little statues up there. Right. That look a little, right. you, you think a little tacky, but show me a modernist building or a weird modernist sculpture. Right. And tell me what it is supposed to be. I'll take the tacky pictures of the saints, right. statues of the saints that look right. more realistic than the right. weirdo abstract sculpture that doesn't look like anything. 
Right. Right? Yep. Okay. Now let's go back to some very particular images that I think are sort of instructive of this. So let's take one, and I don't have a picture of it to show here, um, but you've seen it, and it's called the Divine Mercy. So what it is, is a picture of Jesus, and he's standing here, and he's kind of holding out his hand, and coming out of his heart are these light beams. Right? Yep. And the light beams are zooming out, and they're they're red and blue. And it's sort of weird. Like here's Jesus and he's standing up and these giant right. beams of light are shooting out of him. Like a Marvel comics. Uh, yeah, it, it's It's called the divine mercy. But again, let's go back to representational. So Jesus, this is the divine mercy image. And what it's conveying is Jesus' divine mercy comes from where? Where are the light beams shooting from? His heart. Mm-hmm. Right? It is out of the heart of Jesus and the love of Jesus that divine mercy comes. You go, okay, I can look at that and I go, I get it. The mercy of God and the divine mercy of God is best, you know, uh, understood, right? Is understood in coming out of the heart of Jesus. Right. And why is it beams of red and blue light? Well, remember when the centurion stabbed the Jesus on the cross to see if he's dead, what came out? Water. Water and blood, red and blue. Which is why, by the way, when the priest prepares the Eucharist on the altar and he has the chalice with the wine, he also pours in a small amount of water mm. because in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the Eucharist, his blood was mixed with water. Okay. And so when I look at the divine mercy sta- image, I can go, that looks super weird. Why is Jesus sort of standing there on this, he- you know, uh, looking down with like this weird light beams coming out of his heart. Well, again, representational. Here's Jesus. Right. He's, you know, reaching out to us. He, the mercy of God comes from his heart and it is captured in his crucifixion and his sacrifice in which blood and water poured from his merciful heart for us. Right. I, now I explain that. I go, oh, I get it. I get that image. Right. And the image teaches us. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about another one, which is like the sacred heart of Jesus or whatever this image was kind of holding his heart, right? Right. And you go, yeah, it's sort of weird. Like this guy's kind of right. holding this stylized heart and right. he's sticking it out to you and it has some writing on it. And then it has little thorns around the top. And you go, that's just sort of weird. Who has like a weird heart in their hand right. with thorns right. on it? Go, well, again, you think about it. Jesus is offering his heart to you, right? His sacred heart, right? And it has, it's conveyed with and it has thorns on it. Why? Because he had a crown of thorns and his heart and his love is given for us. So again, part of it is, is a lot of this Catholic art is representational. And the point of, you know, what I've been saying here is that that representational idea and art goes all the way back to the cave paintings, to the Egyptians, to everything sure. else. One of the ways that we convey things in art is, you know, by composing things in certain ways, Yep. That that when we look at them, they make sense. And if you also think about, you know, people say, well, pre-literate times when people would walk in and look at something, go, I know what that image on the wall means. And you can kind of teach with it. See, that is, this means this and this means I this. I remember you telling me this it's somewhere along the line. This is years ago that, you know, if a, uh, in medieval times or whatever, mm-hmm. the, the stained glass windows were teaching people. Yeah the stories of the Bible rather than if they couldn't read, they couldn't get up in the morning and read their Bible or nobody had a Bible yeah. or there wasn't one, you know, I could take you out cathedrals <clears throat> here, but someday maybe I'll, um, we'll get a, a chance to go together, uh, to Europe. I'd love to take you to, uh, some churches in Europe, but one of my favorite, uh, cathedrals in the world is in Orvieto, Italy. And on the entire front of the church, the facade of the church, 
is in carving the entire biblical story from God creating the world in six days to Mm. the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation. Like Genesis 1 to Genesis 22 is all in these relief carvings. I mean, one by one by one, the whole scenes. Right. And so you could say, well, those medieval peasants, you know, they didn't, you know, I'm a Protestant friend, so they didn't have the Bible printed. I go, I guarantee you that they went in there and they knew those Bible studies probably better than than people today. Because how many Christians today only have access to the Bible, have it on their phones, on the internet, and can't tell you Bible stories. They still don't know the stories. They still don't know Bible stories. But those people who walked in, so even in the cathedral in Grand Rapids, when you stand at the front, the stained glass windows going down one side and back down the other to show the entire life of Jesus. So you see from the nativity and then you see him in the carpenter shop with Joseph. And then you see him at 12 years old in the temple. And then you see him being baptized by John the Baptist. And then you see him doing this, healing this person and doing that person and all these miracles. And then you come around, he's in Garden of Gethsemane and then he's in a trial before Pilate. And then he's being right crucified and here's a resurrection. And you can simply walk up and down one side of the the cathedral, down the other, and look at these beautiful stained glass windows that basically lay out the entire life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so as we go into these spaces, and this is what Protestants don't have, right? Because they stripped all the stained glass windows out. It's all naked and all, so we can read and listen to lectures. But you walk into these things and you go, oh yeah. When I go in there, I look up, here's Jesus and he's got this leper and he's healing the leper and the other lepers are, right? Or I look over here and I go, here's Jesus doing this thing or doing that. Here's Jesus at 12 years old in the temple, right? you know, and Mary finding Joseph finding him and he's, you know, doing the teachers of the law. And I go, I know that story. I know what that means. And so a lot of Catholic art is representational and educational. Mm And it also is Catholic in the sense that it comes from, then we talk about music, how over the centuries, music picks up elements, right? I mean, we could, you could give this right. lecture about how, if you look at the history of music, how it picks up melodies and forms and tones and things from various cultures over time. Yep. So that when we listen to say contemporary music today, you go, this is hundreds of years of bits and pieces. Right. Like a musical form, a couple of music forms that I like that you loathe, right? <laughs> um, right. Because I actually like Celtic music. I like, oh, you're I, right. I was going to say, what would I loathe? You're right. You yeah. love Celtic music. And I love Celtic music. When I've been to Ireland, Scotland many times, and I love Celtic music, I love the original old Celtic music. And, you know, I'm not uh, a music person like you, but I remember I was down in the Appalachian Mountains a number of years ago, and I went to this little music place in Asheville or something one night and they had, you know, these kind of bluegrass musicians on there and they were kind of doing some stuff where they were showing in this little club, kind of the history of it. I started to figure out how bluegrass music is a synthesis of the Celtic music that the Scots-Irish people had when they came to America and moved up to the mountains. And then they took their elements of that music sure. and mixed it with other elements. And it becomes this form of bluegrass, which then morphs into country Western, which morphs into, right? So music over time, right? Art right. over time picks up elements and forms. So sure. when you look at the Catholic church, right? Catholic means universal. And I say at the intro, uh, at the beginning of every one of these podcasts, you know, 24 centuries and right. or 20 centuries and 24 time zones, sure. two hemispheres, every race, nation, and language. And so over 2,000 years and 20 time, and 24 time zones and blah, 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 over all that, Catholic art has picked up bits and pieces and they become part of the tradition. 
that a certain thing is always sort of drawn in a certain way or this kind of way of portraying a scene or people or this kind of use of color or this kind of use of stylistic elements or this kind of use of things is different. Like here's the thing that I think is interesting. I get pretty passionate about art history. When you go to, when you look at Rome, okay, and you see like pictures of Rome or old, or you go there or you see movies about ancient Rome, they always have these statues and these buildings that are like, well, they're like white marble. Yep. Right. And you come in, you walk around, everything looks like it's, you know, white marble, except that the Romans, it wasn't white. They were all painted. Hmm. So, so when you go back and they found like when they dig up Pompeii and these kinds of things, the Romans would have these statues in these public spaces and they were, of course, white underneath, but then they painted them bright colors. Yeah. That's why if you go to Latin American countries, there's all of this color. Right. Because they're derived from this sort of Roman culture and everything was painted and colorful. Okay. So let's go back a second and you say, well, why is it when I go to a cathedral, all these statues are weirdly painted statues. You would, you say, hey, look, I was decorated by the mafia. Yeah. And you go, right. But see, that's drawing on visual traditions, traditions of color, of space, of composition, right? That pick, you pick it up over time. You pick up elements of the, yeah. of the Roman uh, culture. You pick up elements of French culture. You pick up elements of these cultures and these cultures. And somehow in this Catholic mix of the, all these centuries and peoples and traditions, this sort of unique tradition of, of, uh, of painting and sculpture right. and, and architecture and design emerges that's mm-hmm. this synthesis of all of these centuries. And then when you go, okay, like we're looking at doing some uh, our, uh, renovations to the church here mm-hmm. and we're talking about some new statues and icons and, you know, changing it. And we want it to look more you know, traditionally Catholic. So as we're sure. working with some consultants, like what kinds of statues and what kinds of icons right. and what would you put here? And we want to draw on those traditions. Things are always done a certain way. Here, here, here's one. Remember we went to the cathedral and I, I said, when we were, got down to the front by the altar and I said, look up, do you remember what was on the ceiling? Oh, the stars. The stars, yeah. right? Because that's part of the tradition that comes out of those thousands of years is that one of the traditional things you would do in a church or particularly a cathedral is over the altar, the ceiling would be painted with a blue with stars mm-hmm. because, right, uh, here's the altar and here's heaven and God right. is up in heaven and the king of heaven, mm-hmm. right? And so you go, that was one of the things. So when you walk into church, you go, why is it like blue with stars? Because that's over the centuries and over the cultures is something that, you know, is done. And so when you look at Catholic art, it is weird. It is discordant. Um, but when you look at it in that larger context of art history and how art is used and, and presented and how art, artistic traditions grow, I think personally, I think it's really cool because I look at stuff and I go, ah, just like you would look at something and go, man, that's surf guitar that's right. rock and roll. Somebody else would go, man, that's country Western. Or somebody else would say, right. I look at something and go, man, that now that's Catholic. And that draws on all these sort of sure. Catholic traditions. And I, although I didn't grow up with it, I can honestly say at this point, I feel most at home wherever I travel in the world. When I sit down in a Catholic church and look at all of those right. paintings and statues and stuff. And even though they aren't 
you know, they don't right. look like whatever. I go, yeah, you can say that they're a little weird. I go, yeah, but I feel like I'm, I'm at home in, in this. Well, pretty soon it just becomes what it is. You know, it is what it is. You, you, um, it's the thing that you're familiar with now and you live in this culture and it, it feels like home, you know? Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, oh, you uh, don't forget the little hand uh, gesture. The two finger. They're always doing this. I'm I'm holding up my hand. I see I see the pictures of Jesus. Yeah, I think what you're referring to is he has this kind of two finger gesture, and I think that is it's a traditional Roman gesture of blessing. Okay, well that makes uh, sense. For example, you go back and look at statues of the Roman emperors. A lot of them are holding that up because oh, it okay. is a sign of blessing. Okay. Upon people from an authority. And so part of that is, once again, you pick up on this sure. ancient sure. tradition of him being portrayed as the ultimate king, the ultimate emperor who, right. who is blessing his people. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes, I, I assumed it was a common thing. I guess I, I was thinking, well, you know, that's just something maybe that everybody did or, you know. Right. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, keep it weird, but it's, way less weird than modern and postmodern art, which is shoved down our throat. Right. I'll go along with that. Jackson Pollock doesn't hold a candle, right? <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.